Hello, friends, and welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. I am Kristen Carey, and I'm going to be your host today. I am so excited to be here with the amazing and wonderful Leslie Vernick. Leslie, thank you for joining me on our podcast today. Oh, you're so welcome, Kristen. So you guys, in case you don't know who Leslie is, you can learn more about her at leslievernick.com. Leslie is a therapist, a coach. She helps women all over the world identify and dismantle when they're in destructive relationships, destructive marriages, destructive family relationships at work, etc. And Leslie does this with the most beautiful marriage of grace and truth. She knows the scriptures. She knows Jesus. She um, has married truth with grace in a way that I've never seen somebody do before. I'm a huge fan of her work. And if you have not already listened to our first episode that we did together, I would highly recommend you go back through the other episodes of the Living Truth Podcast and listen to Leslie's first episode. So today, Leslie and I are going to be talking about equipping people helpers to love women in emotionally destructive marriage as well. And so Leslie, just in case some of our listeners haven't heard your first episode, I'd love for you to just give, give a brief description of what is an emotionally destructive marriage. You know, that's such an important question for people helpers, because oftentimes what the very first mistake that they make as a people helper is they misdiagnose the problem. And so because they're confusing a difficult marriage or a disappointing marriage with a destructive marriage, it's sort of like bronchitis and lung cancer have very similar symptoms of nagging cough and chronic fatigue and shortness of breath. Um, but the antibiotic that a doctor would give someone who had bronchitis is absolutely impotent with someone who has lung cancer. Mm -hmm. So a people helper really needs to discern those differences. So an emotionally destructive relationship goes beyond, or a marriage goes beyond difficult or disappointing with stuff that happens in regular marriages. It's soul destroying, soul crushing, because it's a pattern of repetitive behaviors, because all of us are capable of sin. All of us cross the line sometimes. Sometimes we do or say something watch porn, have a sexual addiction, have a betrayal, um, you know, say something horrible, even maybe hit someone in a moment of anger, your child, your spouse that you should never do in a relationship that you love someone and you want to maintain long term. But a relatively healthy person, both emotionally and spiritually, will wake up from that moment of sin and take responsibility and will do whatever they have to do to not keep repeating it. So when we're looking at emotionally destructive relationships, we're looking for patterns, repetitive patterns of behavior, of actions and attitudes that dominate, um, devalue, dismiss, deceive, and um, just degrade another human being in a regular sort of way. And that becomes a destructive relationship. It destroys the person and it destroys the relationship. You know, I, I mentioned when we were talking right before the podcast that I have a dear friend who is a therapist who recently realized that this is a situation she's in. And she's an educated, um, wise, in tune with God type of a person. Um, I find for her and so many other women I've seen that they're, they're not even able to identify or articulate when they're in the middle of these patterns. Um, and so how much more difficult is it for a woman to identify that and articulate it to people that she's going to for help? Why do you think it is that that is so hard to identify and share with others to get the appropriate type of help for the problem? 
Yeah, I think one reason is because if we've grown up in a home where these patterns have been present, we just think they're normal. We just think this is how a, a mar every marriage works. I remember working with a client once and um, we were talking about the way her husband talks to her and her husband always used the, the B word in defining her. You are a, you know what, I'm not going to say it on the podcast, but we all know what that is. Um, and I said to her, you know, I've been married, I probably had been married 35 years at the time. I said, Never once in my marriage has my ever husband ever called me that word. That's unhealthy. That's sinful. That's destructive to you. And she looked at me like, you're kidding me. Like my grandfather was a pastor and he called his wife that. My husband calls me that. Are you telling me that your husband has never called you that? I said, well, he probably thought it a few times, but he's never, <laughs> he's never called me that word. Not once. Yeah. He said, I can't believe you. I can't believe you. So I think that's one reason we grow up and yeah. we don't really know what healthy is. And we don't really teach what healthy is in the church either. We sort of assume that because you're a Christian, you automatically are healthy. And that's not true. But I think another reason why we don't identify it is some misteaching in spiritual circles like love covers a multitude of sin. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love forbears all things. And so if we start like recording, so how can we tell there's a pattern unless we start paying attention to the pattern? But if you're supposed to put everything in the past as a past and we're not supposed to bring it up and if you forgive, you forget. And all these little truisms that we take from biblical principles and we put them into our lives, well, then we feel guilty remembering these things. We feel wrong, like there's something wrong with us. And so we keep minimizing them and dismissing them. And so we don't see the pattern until we're ready to explode with depression, anger, bitterness, resentment, or we're completely depleted and we don't even know how to put words to it. Gosh. And then if you go in to get help in that kind of a state, who's the one that's going to look crazy? Yeah. And I tell women this all the time, when you let yourself get to a place where you're so frustrated and depleted. I was just speaking at a church yesterday and I was talking to people helpers and I was saying to them, you know, you've got a, a guy who comes in and he looks together and charming yeah. and he's all concerned about his depressed, angry wife. And she looks pretty depressed and angry. And if you don't listen carefully, he looks like the hero of the marriage when in fact he's truly the villain, but she doesn't know how to put it into words in a way that you're going to understand. Mm. Wow. So what, what are the types of characteristics you think pastoral staff and counselors, people helpers could look for to point to an emotionally destructive marriage? So I would say there's a number of things, but so if you have a couple before you who, you know, she's looking pretty depleted, I think it's really important to listen to what she's saying is wrong. Now, first of all, she may not even be safe enough to say it in front of him. So if it looks like she's not being very articulate or she's not able to express herself, we always think marriage counseling is the best form of treatment, but often it's not because she's not safe enough to talk. She's not safe enough to tell what's wrong. The second mistake that we make is sometimes when we're doing marriage counseling, he looks like he's together and he's all caring about her problem, her depression, her, you know, anger, her resentment, her inability to forgive him. And so we start talking to her about her problem in front of him. And what that does is it reinforces a couple lies in the setting. One lie is, I am the problem. This is why he treats me so bad. I am the problem. If only I could get my act together, he wouldn't treat me this way. And it also reinforces his mindset that you think 
like he does, that she is the problem. And so she may have a very real problem with depression or even resentment or bitterness. Those may be something that she needs to work on at some point. But if you're not seeing the bigger picture, you're missing the forest through the trees because you're seeing one person's problem, but you're not seeing the story that led up to that. If you're a repeat victim of abuse or deceit or manipulation, undermining, um, it's very difficult for a woman, especially with these more covert kinds of abuse. Like my husband doesn't validate me. Every time I say something, he tells me I'm wrong. It sort of sounds like you're just a whiny child when you try to put that into words. Mm -hmm. And so it's very hard for a woman, unless she has concrete evidence of biggies, like I saw my husband come out of a hotel room with another woman, or I have a black eye from when he punched me. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to put into words more of these subtle kind of behaviors. And I think deceit, um, which is the bottom line of addictions, mm-hmm. deceit is such a destructive element to a marriage because when someone is really good at lying, you can never trust them again. And so it makes everything very confusing in the marriage because how <clears throat> do you have a relationship of intimacy when you can't trust that person and you're not safe with that person mm-hmm. because they lie to you chronically? You can't, but it sounds so picky when you bring up every single lie that he's told and you can't even validate all of them because you can't find the proof of the lies Mm -hmm. of all of them. And it just sounds ridiculous at times. And so you feel defeated, like you're bringing up all this junk and your pastor's saying, boy, are you a keeper keeper of wrongs? And so you start to feel like a bad person. Wow. So that sounds like it's very, it can be very complex to spot for the people helper. How often, let me just say one other thing. One thing thing that's a very strong hallmark of an abusive relationship is the element of control. So one way that you can spot this is by understanding that when someone's apologetic, let's say they come to the session and they're caught with something like an addiction or a temper problem or mismanagement of money or whatever it is, and they're caught, they can't, they can't spin the story that they're not guilty of it. They'll kind of own it in some way, but but, but they'll put the onus on the other person, but you don't understand. She doesn't affirm me like I need to, or you don't understand. She pushes my buttons or you don't understand. And so it's always somehow her fault that he acts that way. So he's trying to control the narrative so that he looks like the victim and she looks like the villain when he's caught in something like that. So control is one element. Mm. Is another element. And sometimes in a spiritually conservative church, this whole idea of headship. So I get to control you. So you've disrespected me by disagreeing with me, or you've disrespected me by contradicting me, or you've disrespected me by not, you know, coming behind me and applauding me for every little thing I do. And so now I have the right to, um, hurt you or harm you or, uh, yell at you or call you names or spiritually berate you because you haven't done what I think you should do as your leader, as your head. Mm -hmm. And so listen for those elements of control in the conversation, even like, no, it's not that way, or no, that's not how it happened, or no, you can't talk right now, whether it's verbal or nonverbal, there's an element of control Mm -hmm. over someone that makes them feel small and incompetent and objectified. I'm not a person here. I'm an object. I'm to be the wife. I'm to know my place. And I think sometimes churches put women in that role and pornography certainly puts them in that role. You are the object to serve me. 
and don't talk about it. Don't ask me for anything in return. That's what Panoric Free is all about. I get mm -hmm. to get all the perks of a relationship where I don't have to give anything back. So how often do you think when a husband is into pornography or has a, has a sexual addiction, how often do you think that relationship is also an emotionally destructive relationship? Um, I think it, I think that it moves into an emotionally destructive relationship if that person isn't owning their addiction and actively working in recovery. Obviously, we all have addictions, but when you're in addiction like that, it's not just the addiction, it's the deceit around the addiction. Yeah. The deceit around the addiction. So when, when a woman comes in and says, what were you watching? Nothing. And she's in her gut knows that something's going on, but he's assuring her nothing's going on. In fact, he's making her think that she's a little paranoid, that she's overreacting, that she's too sensitive, that she's being ridiculous. All guys fall into this once in a while. And so now she's questioning her own perceptions, her own sense of reality. And that's the destructive element of it. That's one piece of it. The other piece of it is that her husband begins to get a picture of the role of a woman. And the role of a woman is very demeaning and objectified in pornography. There isn't any pornography that doesn't portray women as animals who are in heat, who are looking for sex every single second of the day. Mm -hmm. And so it portrays them in a very distorted, objectified, cartoonish kind of way. And a husband begins to relate to his wife either in that way or not relate to her at all. He's completely indifferent to her as a person. She's either an object to use and often not for sex because he's getting his sex on the computer. It's an object to use to take care of his children, to clean his house, to pay his bills, to make his meals. But it's not a person to relate to. And that's very destructive when you're committed to love someone. Yeah, it, it really is. And with pornography use being so rampant, and so um, destructive, I, I, I would venture to say that there's a lot of times that there's an emotionally destructive dynamic in a marriage where nobody can spot it, not even that woman who's inside of it herself. Mm -hmm. It's really, really sad. What are the types of messages you think that the church t tends to give to women, just in general, and, and to women you know, across the board, not just those in an emotionally destructive marriage, but the, the types of messages that would make it difficult for a woman to come forward and say, I, I need help. I think the biggest message that there's the, the couple, but the biggest one is that the church, and this is the biggest mistake that I think the churches make, is that they have made marriage an idol. Mm -hmm. And the churches have valued the sanctity of marriage more than the safety or the sanity of the people in it. And because of that, what they do is they tell a woman who tells on her husband or says, I can't do this anymore. Well, you just have to try harder because your marriage, keeping your marriage together, however it's together, even if it's in a dysfunctional, sinful together, is better than divorce, is better than separating, is better than you telling the truth. And so we actually encourage women to lie and pretend mm -hmm. to keep their marriage together for the sake of what? The gospel? Does that honor God, that kind of marriage? And so we're, we're, we're not thinking clearly. We're sort of idolatrizing marriage in a way that they did in Jesus' time with the Sabbath. That there were, you know, it's so, so important that we sort of act stupidly that Jesus even says, hey, 
guys, which one of you, if your ox or your even child fell in a well, wouldn't you break the Sabbath to rescue them? Their safety is important. And so when a woman is in a relationship where a husband is objectifying her, misusing her, oppressing her, and for whatever reason, he might also be watching pornography, maybe he isn't. But when you're in that kind of relationship and a woman's told to try harder to be a first Peter kind of wife, which implies to her that suffering and sacrifice are virtuous in silence, in with silence. a gentle and quiet spirit. <laughs> and, and what I would say is you're not reading that passage properly because she, Peter does talk about suffering, but he's not talking about everything about suffering. But he's saying, hey, if you're in a situation where someone oppresses you, you still have choices on how you handle that slaves, for example. All right. So you can still do the right thing, even if someone else is doing the wrong thing. But the right thing is what? So when Paul, when Peter praises someone, when you suffer for what doing for what is right, when you suffer for doing what is right. So what is the right thing for a woman to do? And I think the right thing is to do not participate in unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Mm. And so what he reaps, speak the truth in love. Those are the right things to do not only to save your husband's from his own foolishness, but to hopefully save your marriage, but to just stay silent and suffer and sacrifice to allow someone to continue to sin against you is not noble, nor is it biblical. If you have a choice, mm. have no choice, then you have to choose how you're going to suffer. But if you have a choice, maybe it's to do what's right and expose the deeds of darkness. Mm. So if there's a woman listening and she's realizing this is the problem, um, who does she expose the deeds of darkness to? What do you recommend for that? So the first person she has to expose the deeds of darkness to is herself. Mm -hmm. right? Because I think that we want to close our eyes because if we, it's sort of like when you feel a lump in your breast, you'd rather not know. Like, it's like, oh, I wish I didn't feel that because now it's like, now I know that this needs to be attended to. This needs to have more information. Is it breast cancer? And I don't want to know. And so we sometimes don't want to open our eyes. I call it the awakening phase of awakening like your therapist friend. Here she is a trained therapist and her eyes were opened. My own marriage is destructive. And so the first person that we have to expose that to, and sometimes the way that we expose it is by journaling or by speaking what's going on out loud to a friend. I remember at, at an AACC conference, a professional counselor, Christian counselor conference, a Christian therapist came to me and she said, can I tell you what's happening in my marriage? And so we just sat, I said, not a word. She just said, you know, what was going on in her marriage and she was looking down and I was just mm -hmm. watching her. And as she lifted up her head, she goes, sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? And I said, yeah, but it didn't, it didn't dawn on her until she said it all out loud and she could hear for herself how destructive it was once she put it to words. So I think the first person is to say it to yourself. And then I think it's really important to say it to a trusted person. And this is where I wish the church, I could say, go to your pastor, he'll help you. But that hasn't always been the case. But I would say, who is a trusted person? Someone who's like you or me or someone in a you know, sexual betrayal recovery or domestic violence situation where you can kind of bounce off. This is what's happening in my home. Is this normal? Is it okay for my husband to you know, require me to do this or require me to do that or force me to do this or not give me a choice or cut me off from my family because I should leave and forsake my family and I should only cling to him and therefore I'm not allowed to call my, is this normal? 
Sometimes we lose sense of what normal is through the abusive uh, partner's isolation of us in a situation where we're not allowed to talk to other people. So start asking other people, is this normal? Does this happen to your marriage? Is this, is this how your husband treats you? And begin to understand, no, it's not normal. It might have been normal in your family of origin, but it's not healthy or normal here. Right. So a woman realizes, oh my gosh, I think I'm in a destructive marriage. She tells a trusted person and then she goes to a counselor or she goes to her pastor. So for our counselors and our pastors listening, what can they do to help her? What's that first step that a, that a people helper would take to come alongside a woman in a situation like this? So they would listen. They would listen to the person's story. Um, the Bible says in Proverbs, he who, who, he who answers before he hears, it is folly and shame. So even well-meaning people helpers sometimes jump in with answers like, oh, you need to separate her. Oh, you need to do, you don't know what she needs to do. Mm. She doesn't either know what she needs to do yet, but she needs a witness, someone to bear witness to the truth of what she's discovered. And that's part of the first phase of helping her. Mm. Because when you've been in a relationship that's destructive, you've lost your way as a fully functioning, healthy human being. And so part of your journey now is to create a narrative of your story and have it validated and help then to complete the ending of the story. How are you going to write this ending? Are you going to be a willing victim or are you going to start being uh, an empowered uh, uh, person who does the right thing, even in a hard situation, but you can't do that for her. So don't be the hero. Don't be the rescuer. The first thing that you can do is listen. All right. And that's we, something not only pastors and counselors, but friends and family could and do you, that. You don't have to be trained to be a good listener. And ask good questions. Like when you say that you're so depressed, you don't want to live anymore. What does that mean? Are you suicidal? That, that could be a really important question to ask. Yeah. Or you feel afraid in your, of your husband. What does that mean? Are you afraid he's going to harm you? Or what are you afraid of? So dig deeper, ask questions about what they say. Another for people helpers, let me give you four questions that this is really important. This will help you see the pattern. Remember we talked about how important it is to see the mm -hmm. pattern. So if they say, you know, I feel afraid of my husband, or I feel like I can't trust him, or I feel like, because they usually just tell you a little bit to see whether you're really going to listen and you're really going to believe. So when they tell you something like that, say, wow, you know, that's, that's, that must be really, really tough. When was the first time you started to feel that way? Mm. Right. And so if they say, you know, even before I married him, I, I felt like he wasn't telling me the truth, but I didn't listen to my gut. Okay. So now, you know, well, this has been a long time. When was the last time you felt that way? Oh, I felt that way yesterday. What's a typical time? What's that like? And flesh out the details. So the first time, the last time, a typical time, the worst time. Okay. So my husband, I'm afraid of my husband. What's the first time you were afraid of your husband? Oh, I was afraid of him on my honeymoon. He turned from a good guy into somebody I didn't even know. And when was the last time you were afraid of your husband? What's a typical time? What's the worst time? If you ask those four questions, you will get a picture of the pattern. For example, if the first time was last week and they'd been married 25 years, well, that says something very different. Like maybe he's got a medical problem or a brain tumor that's causing changes in his behavior, right? Mm -hmm. If he's been that way for 25 years and she's just finally waking up to this, it's a whole different picture, right? Right. And those questions give you a picture of the pattern. And also, for example, 
my husband hurts me. When was the first time he hurt me? Well, on my honeymoon, he, he held me down while we had sex and I couldn't get up. When was the last time he hurt me? Just last week, he held a loaded gun to my head. All right, well, now we can see it's, it's getting more dangerous for her, right? Mm -hmm. In front of the children. And so, so we see really quickly with those four questions, a pattern where the abuse or the destructive behavior escalating in frequency and intensity. And from the answers to those questions, it will give you a wealth of information of where this, where this woman is and what she's living with. Mm. Okay, Leslie, your explanation of that just made me think of a question that breaks my heart to ask, but these children who are witnessing an emotionally destructive marriage, so often we think, oh, save the marriage at all costs, especially for the sake of the kids. But what is the impact on children when they grow up witnessing an emotionally destructive marriage between their parents? Well, the Bible is very accurate when it says the sins of the fathers are passed on to the next generation. And mm -hmm. so children see and learn from what they live with. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I think we've misunderstood the, the long-term consequences of children who live in traumatic situations. So if kids are witnessing abuse of their mom, whether it's overt abuse, hitting her, calling her names, screaming, punching holes in walls, understand that that traumatizes a child's brain. And none of us, no matter how old we are, if you live in fear, you do not grow. You cannot, all your growth is stymied because all your psychological, physical, and emotional energy is going towards safety. So our brain is hardwired for two things. It's hardwired for safety, and that's the amygdala and all the reflexive things that make us jump away from a snake and all those kind of things. And then it's wired for growth. Babies naturally want to grow. They naturally start to crawl. They naturally pull themselves up. They naturally want to do the next step. No, I want to do it myself. That's their, God's wired us to grow and to be intuitively aware of an unsafe situation. Our bodies go into alert, fight or flight, right? So when a child or even an adult is living in a fight or flight environment all the time, it takes its toll on its physical body. But for children especially, it actually rewires their brain so that opportunities that might have happened in the future aren't going to happen because their brains didn't get wired properly. And so it has very serious long-term effects on child development, both psychologically, mentally, as well as educationally. And so yeah. I think you do a disservice to say, stay together at all costs. Um, however, sometimes the abuse is more covert and they're a good dad and they're a horrible husband. And what if they're a good dad and they're not physically abusive to the wife, but they're emotionally abusive to her in front of the kids? What kind of an impact does that have on the kids? It has a very serious effect and it's actually got a name to it. It's called parental alienation and so what happens is so the marriage is supposed to have a bond between husband and wife so if you have two circles and you've got this bond between husband and wife and then you've got both husband and wife have bonds with their children and that's what a normal family looks like and then children go and have bonds with their own families and their bonds with their parents get a little looser because that's not their intimate family anymore they have their own intimate family but the husband wife bond is strong but when the husband wife bond is not strong because of abuse and the one parent, whether it's the husband or the wife, starts developing a stronger bond with their children. 
Um, and sometimes that can be fine as long as they're not undermining the bond with the other parent. But when one parent is undermining the bond with the other parent, so they're, you know, your mom's just wired too tight. Let's go have donuts for dinner. Your mom's always making you do your homework. Let's watch a movie tonight, kids. This is a true story of a, a husband who did this to his wife. You know, your mom always wants to take you to church, but kids, I want to take you to the zoo. Who You want to go to church with mom, but you want to go to the zoo with me. So he's undermining in very subtle ways that let's not listen to mom. Let's not value what mom has to say. And mom's trying to be the parent and dad is being the Disney dad, but kids are kids. And if you give them a choice, they're going to eat candy over dinner. <laughs> and so it's a very subtle way of undermining her authority as a parent and her role in their life by dad saying mom's always being the bad guy and mom's being the cop. And sometimes moms get into that role and they allow the husband to be the Disney dad and she becomes the cop. And kids naturally will hang with the dad who's giving them everything they want, not making them do anything they have to do. Uh, and so it's a very destructive thing, not only for their marriage, it's a very destructive thing to the psychological development to have a bond broken with another parent by the other parent. Yeah. Wow. That really uh, is so sad. That makes me just so sad for the children that are growing up in that kind of an environment. So um, we were starting to talk about what the church and what people helpers can do to help that woman. You gave me those four questions. Oh my gosh, amazing. I'm going to write those down. Um, and we talked about the first step being listening, which is something family, friends, the church can do to support her and love her children well. Um, beyond listening and for, and for those who are trained as pastoral staff mm -hmm. or counselors, being able to ask those four questions, what are, what are other steps that people who care about this woman can take to love her well when she's going through this? So I think the second step is, so you're going to listen. And then the second thing that every woman wants to know is you're going to validate. Mm. validate like you're not crazy this is awful I'm so sorry you're going and to... how about I believe you I and believe I... you yeah versus well you know there's always two sides of the story I'm gonna have to talk right to you and all those kind of things so I believe... or assuming that she did something and that's why he's acting like this Yes. I mean, the worst thing that you can say to someone, I mean, imagine you go to your pastor and your child's got cancer, you know, and, and you say, well, you know, he's got cancer because you, you were smoking in the house or you didn't feed him well, or, you know, it's a horrible thing to cast the blame on someone else. So your husband treats you that way. You must not be a good wife. What'd you do to make him so mad? What'd you, well, aren't you giving him enough sex? That's why he's watching porn. And we hear this all the time uh, from uneducated and probably pastors who are doing the same thing. And so they want to <laughs> excuse their sin by blaming the other person. And so I think it's really important that we validate their story. Um, and if we have some questions about some of the story, I'm not saying you have to validate every you know, sentence, but you know, I'm so glad you came. Wow, this sounds really tough. This is hard. You know, I can't imagine going through what you're going through. So even through empathy, you can validate. The next thing that I think can be really helpful is you understand that her first need and her family's first need is not how to make the marriage better or keep the marriage together, is is she safe? Mm. Is she safe? And I'm not just talking about, you know, loaded guns to head safe. Um, but if she's, if she's telling you, I can't 
live with this man anymore. And when he wants to have sex with me, it's so degrading to me that I have to take three Xanax and drink two shots of vodka. This is a true story in order to be able to endure this. She's not safe. Yeah. She's not safe, right? If she's feeling suicidal, like maybe God would rather me kill myself than get divorced, which I had a missionary woman tell me her husband was a pastor. It's better for me to just kill myself and I won't ruin his ministry. That's not thinking, she's not safe. She's not thinking clearly, yeah. right? And so, and here's one other example that's much less subtle. This woman was in a destructive marriage and she wanted to stay because this would honor God. And she went to, the, she had five kids. She went to the doctor and they were just there for their physical. And the doctor pulls her in the office and he said, what's wrong at home? And she's like, did somebody say something? And her kid, her husband wasn't physically abusive, but he was a rager and a lecturer about everything that was wrong with everybody. And they would have to endure hours and hours of these lectures. And the doctor said, every single one of you has high blood pressure. There's something really wrong. Mm. Not safe. Their bodies are breaking down. Even her five-year-old had high blood pressure. Oh, Right? That's the stress of living in that kind of environment. And so I think it's really important for us as people helpers to assess that it's not more important to keep the marriage together at that point. It's more important for her to get healthy emotionally, physically, mentally, um, spiritually. And if that requires her to leave the environment in order for her to do so, and maybe her leaving the environment would be a good wake-up call for the oppressor as well, that I'm not living like this. I can't live like this. We can't do marriage like this. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's where people helpers can help her assess her safety and is she safe? And then what's the next step if you're not safe? And she might not be ready to do all that. So don't come in as the hero and right. say, well, I'm going to rent a U-Haul and we're coming to your house today and we're going to put you into an apartment because she might just go back. She's not psychologically ready to leave. But that's part of the counseling work or part of the helping work of helping her get ready to take better care of her, which mm -hmm. includes instead of martyring herself, thinking that that's the biblical approach for the sake of her husband's dysfunction. Mm -mm. Leslie, why do you think it is that women who do wake up and realize this is what's happening and then they leave and get safe, why do so many of them go back? I think there's a number of reasons. One is that we haven't helped women enough to be a person um, and so they've grown up, even I've, I've interviewed young women as um, I've worked with the older women, I've interviewed their daughters who are college age kids or, you know, in their 20s. And I don't think we've done a good job as a church to validate women as people. We, young girls want to be wives and moms, right? That's what they want to be when they grow up. Most of them do. Mm -hmm. I want to be a wife. I want to be a stay at home mom. I want to take care of my kids. And those are noble roles but you are more than just a wife and a mom. What kind of person do you want to be? And we haven't done a good job at helping women develop their personhood. And so they feel very shaken when the role of wife is, especially they decide, I'm not going to do this anymore. If their husband leaves them, that may be something they have to do, but, but they have a hard time making that choice. Um, I think financially they're not ready because they haven't prepared themselves. Um, we haven't taught them that, hey, you might want to be a stay-at-home mom, and that's a noble thing, and I applaud you if you're able to, but if your husband should die or leave you for another woman, you have to be able to function as an adult, which includes supporting yourself. So what kind of career are you going to have so that you can do that, especially if you choose to have a lot of children? You still have to support yourself if he wigs out and leaves. 
All right. And so that's really important. I think that we have to do a better job there. But I think also there's something that's called trauma bonds. Mm-hmm. And um, when you're not healthy yourself, and maybe you haven't had a healthy background and you have trauma bonds with someone, um, it's very hard to break those trauma bonds and detach. It's not love. It's not a good marriage, but you feel very lonely and empty without being with your abuser. We've even read stories of like the children who have been kidnapped, like J.C. Dugard, who had mm-hmm. been kidnapped and she was stuck in that place for like 20 years and had three children with this, her captor. And yet she talked about the trauma bonds there that, you know, that there was this, maybe he cares about me, maybe he, you know, and, and it's hard to be without that when you're all by yourself and you've never had to manage yourself by yourself. And mm-hmm. so that's part of the counseling work of really helping a woman do her own work. And, and that's the other thing people helpers can help her do. So one of the things you want to ask them is, so they've told you the problem with their marriage. They've told you the problem with him. He's a sexual addict. He's abusive. He's controlling. So now we have to help her understand what's your problem. I'm breaking down. I can't live like this. I'm scared. Okay, what can we do about your problem? We're not Mm going to fix his problem. So really for the counselor, they have to weed through all of that narrative, validate it, listen to it. But it's so tempting to help her fix him. And that's pointless. Only he can fix him. Mm -hmm. All she can do is work on her. So what is the things that she wants to work on? How does she want to grow through this? And really help her develop that strength so that if she does leave, she can stay in a good place. Mm. So Leslie, let's say a couple comes in together and the counselor or the pastor who's seeing them can tell by the woman's body language and her talk that something's not quite right here. Um, Would you recommend that they change their focus to be able to meet with each person separately to be able to hopefully allow more of the truth to come out? And then the second part of my question that's attached to that is what are the just can you describe the posture of the type of man who actually could change and is actually open to considering that he may have been abusive? Okay. Um, Definitely. So let me make a a statement and I'll say it real slowly so people can write it down because this is really important. Chronic addictions, chronic abuse, chronic deceit, chronic adultery. So those patterns, these biggies, abuse, addictions, deceit, adultery, these are not marriage problems. They cause marriage problems. Mm. The treatment plan is not marriage counseling. You can't fix the marriage. It's like, (laughs) it's like you have a house. Here's a metaphor. You have a house and a gigantic sinkhole has opened up underneath the house and half of it has sunk right? And now the foundation's cracked. To fix that house, you don't fix the house first. You have to address the sinkhole problem. And so you definitely have to separate them because the addict or the chronic adulterer or the chronic liar or the chronic abuser, they have their own work to do, as does the victim. She has her own work to do, but it's separate work. You're not working on the marriage. You're working on the mindsets, the mindsets that say, I'm entitled to act that way. I'm entitled to lie. When she disappoints me, I'm entitled to cheat. I'm entitled to have porn in my back pocket if she doesn't want to have sex the way I want to have sex. There's a lot. I'm entitled to hurt her if she hurts me. There's a lot of crazy mindsets that go in the mind of a, a chronic person who does those things, even though they say they're a believer. And 
in the mindsets of a woman who puts up with it. Like, I don't deserve better and I'm not worth anything. And God says I have to suffer for Jesus and God hates divorce above all else. So I might as well just sacrifice myself as a lamb led to the slaughter, as one woman told me. So there's a lot of individual work that we do with each of them to help them get healthy because God cares about their emotional and spiritual health and stability. So that's step one. We don't see them together. So if a pastor notices that, here's what he can say. You know, as I've been listening to your story, I really don't think marriage counseling is the best treatment plan for you right now. I really think that the first step we need to do is work with you separately. Now, this will be really telling because oftentimes the, and we're just going to say the man who's the, you know, abuser or the addict, the man doesn't really want to change. He just wants to convince his wife that she needs to either put up with it or be better so he won't act that way, right? And so mm -hmm. when the counselor colludes with that mindset by working on her in front of him, it reinforces that mindset. Plus, when you separate them and you say, hey, I think you each have your own work to do, that's a huge tell whether he's really going to do his work. Mm. Because he can pretend to do his work by sitting in the marriage counseling. But when you're just one-on-one -on -one with him and he all he wants to do is complain about how awful his wife is, you have to keep zeroing and saying, well, what's your work to do in here? What's your piece of this puzzle? So, so why are you cheating on your wife? Well, she's not. So why do you stay with her if she's not such a good wife? Well, I love, well, then why don't you work on your problem? You know, so there's, there's questions, probing questions that we have to ask him and putting his feet to the fire about why he acts the way he acts. Because typically unhealthy people, whatever unhealthiness you have, lack self-awareness. He's not owning his own stuff, his own emotions, his own thoughts. He's not even aware of the excuses and the blame shifting and the victim mindset he, he's portraying here. And so part of the counselor's job is to open his eyes and see if they can be opened. And so what's the sign that they can be opened? If he can begin to open and see what he's doing, because self-awareness begins to lead to self-reflection. Mm. Like, oh, why am I thinking this way? Why did I think it's okay to lie just because I was unhappy? Why did I choose to have, you know, three affairs? And, and if I love my wife, why would I do such a thing? And so now it's that reflection that's going on. And when you have self-awareness and self-reflection, then you have the opportunity to move into self-control. But you can't do any self-control stuff until you have some self-awareness and some reflection capabilities. And that's all individual work. Wow. Leslie, I sure hope our listeners have had a pen and paper in front of them for this because you gave us so many pieces of gold in the things that you've shared today. I just thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to spend with me right now and to share with our listeners. You're so welcome. And just one more piece that I think is really helpful because if a pastor is listening to this or a counselor, nobody changes overnight. So we have a lot of empathy because you know, of course you have relapses and all that kind of stuff. But if you don't have that self-awareness piece, so when you have a relapse, let's say someone's had a temper problem. We'll just use that as an issue. So if you start to get hot and you're starting and you've abused in the past or you've banged down walls or you've said stupid stuff or you've gone and watched pornography or gone to a sex parlor and had a massage or whatever you've done when you start getting hot and angry, right? And you don't want to do that anymore. The first step is being self-aware. Well, I'm getting hot. What else could I do? Who can I call? What's my accountability partner? What's my relapse? prevention plan here. But if you're not aware of that, you just keep acting out. And yeah. then you act, what am I going to do? And let's say you, you, you missed a beat. You're not aware. All right. The, the really important piece for women to notice is if I give my husband feedback and I say, you're scaring me right now. You look like you're getting really angry. 
Is he now receptive to that feedback? Mm -hmm. Okay. And does he stop then and self-reflect? If he's not able to do any of that, there isn't a prayer in the world that will change him. Yeah. Right? Those have to be put in place in order for him to change. Because if he can't stop himself by being aware, or he can't stop himself by being receiving a feedback, then the two mechanisms that God has put in place in Hebrews 3.13, it says, let us encourage anyone day after day, everyone, lest any one of us become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so that feedback loop is so important. And that's why we need accountability partners. That's why we need to be able to receive that feedback. And if the abuser or the adulterer or the addicted person cannot receive feedback from those closest to him without bristling and you know rejecting it, then there isn't any hope at all for them to change. Mm. That is true. Have you ever seen it happen where uh, a man is real defensive, but then his wife decides to make a, a bold move and to set some serious boundaries? Perhaps she says, I can't live like this anymore. I'd like to ask you to move out or I and my, myself and the kids are going to move out. If you can make some changes X, Y and Z, you know, detailing what she's looking for, then I will consider reentering a relationship with you. Um, have you ever seen it happen where when a wife takes it seriously and sets boundaries and gets some space for her safety, that that's a wake-up call to him and that then he changes? That's a wake-up call for him, yes. And I have seen that happen, but here's the nuance that you want to pay attention to. If his goal is to change to get her to come back, mm. that's a sustainable enough goal, right? Right. Because once she comes back, it's sort of like trying to lose weight for your high school reunion. You know, you can do it. <laughs> you can do it. But the reunion's over and it's like, okay, now I get to eat what I want to eat again, right? So the, the, the goal of change has to be, I don't want to be that kind of man anymore. Yeah. The wake-up call isn't, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my family. The wake-up call is, oh my gosh, I've been an abuser and I don't want to be like that anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? Because in that motivation to change that sustains whether she says, I can trust you again or I can't. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not up to her then to take him back because then he'll relapse. And that puts a lot of pressure on her. Right? It does. So, yeah. And sometimes, I mean, I just want to be fair. Sometimes trust is irrevocably broken. Yeah. You have lied so much that you might genuinely be repentant, but nobody would ever know because you are a good liar. Mm-hmm. That's why in our work, we use polygraphs early on in the process to, def- to be able to determine whether the truth is out there or not. Mm-hmm. So that concrete evidence is helping to rebuild trust, both his willingness to take it and mm-hmm. the results. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So if any of our listeners here are men and you are the one struggling with a sexual integrity issue, whether it's pornography addiction or affairs, Leslie's talked about getting accountability, getting help. And we'd love for you to reach out to us at living-truth.org because we have groups for men that are all online. We have groups for women too, going through betrayal trauma. Um, I'd also like to encourage you to check out Leslie's website, which I gave at the beginning. She has incredible groups for women in emotionally destructive relationships. So Leslie, thank you so much for being with us here on the Living Truth Podcast today. You're so welcome. Thanks for inviting me. All right, friends. We hope this was helpful to you and we look forward to hearing uh, or to talking to you more on our next episode.